You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Good morning, church. Peace be with you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. It is so good to be together again. Uh, so happy to be gathering together. And for those of you that are, are worshiping, worshiping with us online, uh, we welcome you. Okay, our scripture today comes from Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. And ask if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew writes, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God— they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Always good to see you here. Well, I'm reading a novel right now called uh, Swamplandia, and it takes place in the Everglades swamps in Florida. It's an interesting novel. It's far from perfect. In fact, I don't actually recommend it to you. But, but what the author does well is to show what the culture it's very different to all of us, of the swamplands is like. There's a whole separate culture of sort of the swamplands, the rough and weird characters, the alligators everywhere, the sawgrass plains and the egrets and herons and the mangroves and the invasive melaleuca trees and and how the swamp island living people think of everyone else as mainlanders who they don't really understand. And this novel does a great job of showing you a whole different way of life, a different culture, a, a different worldview, complete with its own language and points of reference and metaphors and insights and blind spots. And one of the narrators of the story is a very intelligent boy named Kiwi Big Tree, who ends up leaving his family and the island that he grew up on to try to live on the mainland. And he grew up in the swamps with this, again, very odd family, learning to wrestle alligators in in his family's dilapidated alligator park. 
And so he's been enculturated into a way of seeing and being in the world that he doesn't even know, he's not even aware of, and he doesn't know how weird it is until he moves to the mainland and tries to live there at this and work at an amusement park on the mainland with its entirely different way of speaking and assumptions and lifestyle. So Kiwi must go through this painful assimilation into a different culture, a new enculturation, learning to know what to say and what not to say, how to relate to women who are not his sisters, how to think differently. And the process of that, I mean, it's very difficult and awkward for him. If you've ever lived in a different country, you know something about this, or maybe you even experience something like this when you went to college or maybe moved to a different part of the country or started to work in a new corporate culture. There's a process of learning a whole new set of habits and assumptions and worldview. Now, I start this way this morning because I am so thrilled that today we are returning to our preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Hooray! I'm very excited about it. And in my years of teaching and preaching from the Gospels, I have come to see that one of the main points for God giving us these four wonderful Gospels is that we might be shaped, that we might be enculturated to see and be in the world in certain ways. Because through the Gospels, Jesus is engaging us in a soul-level, human-race-wide enculturation project, reforming our hearts and our minds and our habits and our loves from the wild, swampy world of our human culture into the solid, life-giving ground of the kingdom of God. And that's what it means to be a disciple very much, to be re-enculturated into a different set of values and habits and ways of speech and relationships. But this re-socialization, this re-socializing of our, of our lives is often very uncomfortable, <laughs> and it, especially at first, but all throughout. And it's sometimes shocking and awkward and makes us self-aware of things that we, that we weren't aware about ourselves before. And our text for today is a story about something that happened between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day that hits right on Jesus' re-enculturation project. And it feels awkward. It's even a little offensive because the culture-changing Jesus is going right for the heart. So we've heard it read. I want to explain it to you, but let me pray uh, before we do so. Let me pray once more for us. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, give ourselves to you. We are very aware, maybe especially in this time, that uh, we can't control our lives. And so we yield to you. We bend the knee to you today and ask you to fill us with understanding, to transform us, to, to touch our hearts, to heal us, and to make us new people in your image. And I pray that you do that by the power of the Spirit even now, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as I said, it's been a little while since we've been in Matthew, and we're actually picking up the story here in Matthew 15, about halfway through the whole biography of Jesus. So let me just remind you of a couple of things that have happened before we get back to our story. So for some time now in the story, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, has been traveling all at Ben Galilee, the northern part of Israel. He's been preaching and teaching and healing people, casting out demons, loving people, performing miracles, pronouncing that the kingdom of God is about to arrive on earth. And the result of that has been twofold. On the one hand, 
Thousands of people are following him and believing in him, including this group of 12 disciples with Peter as the leader who are closest to him. But on the other hand, the Jewish religious leaders of the day were suspicious of him at first, and now they are full on angry and opposed to Jesus because his teachings are so upsetting and because the crowds that are following him are, and that are gathering around him are disruptive to their authority and to the Jewish way of life. And that opposition to Jesus came to a head a few chapters earlier, back in Matthew chapter 12, when the the most conservative of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, so these are like the experts on the Bible, they came to Jesus and they confronted him about what they perceived of his breaking of one of the Ten Commandments, particularly the Sabbath, where you have to keep a day free from work. And you can go back and listen to that sermon if you'd like. But that confrontation did not go well for them because what happened, if you go back and look at Matthew 12, maybe you can look at it today, Jesus, the carpenter, untrained, not a rabbi, infuriated the Pharisees by showing them that they, the experts in the Bible, didn't really know what they were talking about, that there was a deeper reality to the scriptures and the issue of the Sabbath, that the purpose of the Sabbath was to give life, to show mercy, not to just be related to externally and obeyed to the letter in that way. And that's going to prove to be very important for our story today. So the result of that conflict back in chapter 12 between Jesus and the Pharisees is the Pharisees said, we're done. That was it. They decided in chapter 12, verse 14, that they were going to kill him. Because this popular teacher, this miracle worker, Jesus, he couldn't be out-argued. He was proving to be dangerous to the Jewish way of life. He was practicing things that that didn't work with them. And so the calculation was easy for them. The only way to, to deal with this is to kill him. Of course, they had no idea about the resurrection. They thought that was gonna be the final solution. So in chapters 13 and 14, then Jesus continues teaching about God's coming kingdom from heaven. He performs some shocking miracles, one public, he feeds thousands of people in the wilderness and one private, he walks on water to his disciples in the night. And meanwhile, the scribes and Pharisees are loading for bear. On the oxen cart, they have a Hebrew version of that bumper sticker you may have seen, keep honking, I'm reloading. I think they had like a sort of a Hebrew version of that on their oxen cart. And then they come, we come to Matthew 15. We haven't heard from them for a while. And now in verse one, they show up, not just Galilean religious leaders, but they send a delegation from Jerusalem. Things are really ramping up here. Jesus has outwitted them in Bible study, and he has more and more people following him, thousands out in the wilderness at this kind of religious Woodstock or something. And people keep saying that he performed an Exodus-like miracle. He fed people and walked on water. And so they say, it's time to send in the religious troops, the the experts from the capital, the temple, the Jerusalemites. And look at verse 2 again, and you'll see no niceties. No circuitous conversation or beating around the burning bush. They get right to it. Verse two, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now to us, this may seem like kind of an odd question to come to Jesus. They, they didn't come to it with a detail of Hebrew grammar or some major moral dilemma, but they challenge him on the issue of pre-dinner hand-washing. And the reason is, is because 
this is actually, it seems odd to us, but this is central to the Jewish way of life. That they got this partly from God's law, but it's the issue of purity. The central category that drives first century Jews like this and the religious life and practice was about cleanness or uncleanness or purity and defilement. Now, in this weird COVID season for us, we have a kind of version of this, don't we, where we think of everything as sort of sanitized or not. But it was much more significant. For the Jewish people, every person and place and event and day and space was either pure or impure. It was either clean or unclean. It was ramped up, though, even more than it is for us because it was a religious issue that every person, place, day, object was either right before God or unclean before God. And in fact, this idea of germs, which they did not think of in those terms, of course, this idea of germs actually is a good analogy for how first century Jewish people viewed sin. It was like a germ theory of sin, that there were things outside of us that if we made contact with them, they would make us unclean. And that's central to their whole worldview. So you don't eat pork chops because it comes from an unclean animal. You don't live in a house with mold because that's unclean. You don't marry a foreigner because that's unclean. All of these things would make you unclean before God, all these outside things. Now, God had instructed many of those details, but what happens is you can imagine over the centuries, conservative, sincere, often anxious people made up a bunch of rules customs and habits to make sure that nobody disobeyed any of these rules. And they kind of, they took the germ theory of sin to the extreme. And if you give this kind of view time with strongly opinionated teachers and rabbis, you end up with what God actually said, and then a whole stack of layers of other rules and regulations about how to avoid unclean things on top of it. So in verse two, what we see is that these conservative leaders are upset with Jesus because he and his followers have not obeyed one of the elders' traditions, one of the rabbinic traditions, that you have to wash your hands before you eat or you will become unclean. So it's kind of like, but maybe ramped up, like the pressure you might feel when you go out with a Christian you don't know as well. Like, are we supposed to pray before the meal at the restaurant? And that's why we need pre-blessed food. If you, ever, if you know what that is, Google it. Pre-blessed food, it's a joke. You can look it up. But we as readers of Matthew are supposed to feel the deep irony. We're supposed to feel the deep awkwardness of this moment because if you're reading Matthew, what's just happened out of great compassion Jesus has has fed thousands of people that were starving in the wilderness. And then the Jerusalemites come and they're upset that they didn't wash their hands. You're supposed to feel how different that is and how wrong that is and how sadly ironic and it gets to the heart of the matter. So that's the Jerusalemites challenge. How will he respond? Well, let's look at verses three to nine again. His response is weighty and intense. Jesus replied, verse three, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, so there's a word there, just mean korban, which just means I was going to give this money to help my parents, but now I've devoted it to God instead. 
they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So the Pharisees' challenge to Jesus was very pointed. Jesus' response is very pointed too. He actually doesn't disagree with them that they are, that he and his disciples are actually breaking a rabbinical traditional teaching about hand washing, but he responds in a twofold way. First, he points out that these supposed important traditions, rather than actually helping people obey God, weirdly and ironically end up making people disobey God. And he gives the example again of this idea that you're supposed to take care of your parents, your elderly parents, and yet many of the Pharisees with great pomp and circumstance would take gifts and in public display, they would say, I am giving this gift to God. And what Jesus points out is on all that public display where you get all the praise of others, you're actually, which is the rabbinic tradition, you're actually disobeying God even by the supposedly spiritual thing of giving to God in this case. And the second argument he makes is again this quote from Isaiah. Let me read it once more. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. In other words, while the religious conservatives are doing a bunch of apparently good things, it's actually in vain. It's actually useless because their, their actions, their lips are there, but their heart is not. And friends, that's intense. That is heart-cracking and eye-opening, and it's the same thing Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, that there is such a thing as hypocrisy, is what he calls it. And when you and I think of the word hypocrisy, we think of someone who's living like a double life. They've, they're doing all these things on the outside, but then secretly they're doing a bunch of bad stuff too. But the kind of hypocrisy Jesus is talking about here is where people are actually doing good things, but their heart is not connected to God. They're not living a double life in terms of they're not doing a bunch of immoral things. They're actually good, upstanding people, but they're not doing it from a heart connected to God. So we can sing songs with our lips. We can speak theological truth with our lips. We can say nice things with our lips. We can promote traditional and conservative ideas with our digital lips on social media. But if our hearts are not attuned to God, then according to Isaiah and Jesus, they join together to say we are worshiping in vain. We don't really understand God. Those are intense words. And that's an intense truth that actually should shock us, should make us feel a little uncomfortable, should cause us to do a little introspection. Is that true of me? In all my outward godliness and habits and traditional views and customs, have I actually lost connection to God? Have I forgotten who he really is and what he really loves and cares about, even in the midst of all my religiosity? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, compassion. And if you feel a little lanced, a little sharp jab of pain from these questions, that's good. <laughs> that's a gift. That's the Holy Spirit taking another step of reenculturation in your life to make you wake up and see yourself and see myself well. And maybe you're actually even offended by these questions and this idea that Jesus would sort of 
overturn a lot of these traditions. That's okay, too. All is welcome. But if you're offended, I just want you to see whose company you're sharing. Look at verses 12 and 13. The disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus' response is not, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, they, I hurt their feelings. Instead, he says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them their blind guide guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So as always, when we hear Jesus speak, we face a choice. The Pharisees faced it and we do as well. Are we willing to listen, even if it's painful and disruptive to our way of thinking? Or are we offended because it's too invasive? Now, Jesus is full of compassion and kindness. Jesus doesn't treat people wrongly ever, but he also knows a blind guide when he sees one. And he knows that these leaders who have set themselves against him, they have decided already three chapters earlier to kill him. They know that he's not open to hearing his voice. But our story doesn't end there. We're actually now getting to the heart of it. Look back at verses 10 and 11. He turns to the crowd and he says this, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. So for the broader crowd of disciples, Jesus then summarizes what he's trying to say to the Pharisees, that taking food into your mouth with unwashed hands doesn't cause you to be unclean or defiled. Do you know what, you want to know what really causes that? It's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out. Now, to you and me, that may seem like a pretty straightforward teaching, maybe not. But you have to remember that for everybody hearing Jesus in his own day with this sort of germ theory of sin, this is hard to understand. You're saying it doesn't matter what goes into the mouth? It doesn't actually affect you? And also remember that starting back in chapter 13, Jesus has started to teach in these like little pithy sayings like this one, the parables and little aphorisms or pithy sayings. And the disciples never understand what he's saying. And so this is what we see in verse 15 then. Peter says, explain the parable to us. And then Jesus responds, are you still so dull? (laughs) Ouch. But you have to remember that way back in chapter 13, Jesus said to them, I am teaching in a way that those on the outside will not be able to understand and those on the inside will be able to understand. And now I gave you what seems to be a pretty straightforward teaching and Peter representing the other disciples says, I don't understand what you're saying. And so then Jesus in verse 17 gets to the very heart of it. Look there. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth, those come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So here it is. Here is Jesus' teaching in all its clarity. He doesn't reject the categories of pure and defiled, clean and unclean, sin or not or sinless, but he challenges our assumptions about what that means. Clean and unclean, pure and defiled, sin is not something outside of us or just matters 
of what we do with our behavior, but purity and sin are ultimately matters of the heart, of the inner person, that person in us that no one sees but God. Our bodies matter, certainly. What we do with our bodies matter very much, but there's this great tendency in all of us as humans, maybe especially in us who are religious humans who are trying to obey God, there's this tendency to keep our godliness and our righteousness on the outside, to externalize our faith and only make it about our behavior and customs and traditions, to make sin just about what we do. Why do we do this? Because it's so much easier and so much safer to our fragile souls. Because when we start being honest and looking inside at all the lust and hatred and laziness and judgment we have toward others and self-centeredness and unfaithfulness that fills our hearts, it is painful. It is encouraging. It is unsettling. It is embarrassing. It is scary. And so we build walls against ourselves. We justify ourselves. We externalize a view of ourselves that we're not so bad. See, look at all the good things I do or try to do. I give money to the church. I'm not sleeping around. I didn't punch that jerk even though I wanted to. I show up at Bible study. I, didn't, I don't cut corners too much at work. But looking at ourselves honestly and paying attention to that inner person, our hearts, is very difficult. And when we start to do so, we feel a lot of shame and we want to flee from that. And so the sad irony that Jesus is pointing out with the Pharisees that we can use religious customs, even very conservative ones, to avoid opening our heart to God, that's true as much as us as it is of the Pharisees. It's a human problem. And I can't help but think of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says the exact same thing. Remember a couple of these things he says there. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you should not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. It's not just the exterior act, it's the heart. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not just the exterior act, it's the heart as well. The issue is the heart. Sin does not start outside of us, but starts inside us. And I'll say the same thing I said when we were looking at those teachings back in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you can go back and listen to those sermons as well. Simply that God sees and cares about our hearts. He doesn't care about all your religious performance if he doesn't have your heart. He, do, he wants to know you and to be known in your inner person, to have an honest, internal, nothing held back relationship with you in your heart. And this is what's so beautiful and powerful about the truth of Christianity. All other religions and philosophies of life that are out there, they all focus on our performance, on training us to do things, and if we do them well, we will find success or favor. But Christianity alone turns this inside out. Jesus says, start on the inside, start being honest with what's going on in your inner person. That is where I want to start the re-enculturation project, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And we see in our story that this teaching 
is a game changer and it splits everyone in the world into two categories, those who are willing to embrace what Jesus says and begin this journey and those who are not. So as I was preparing for this sermon, I pulled up um, you know, the, the schedule of the sermons and the last sermon I preached, and it was March 1st. I preached from Matthew, not the last sermon I preached here, but the last time we were in Matthew was March 1st. I preached that morning from Matthew 14. The next Sunday, March 8th, which was my 50th birthday, I remember well, we had a guest in the pulpit, John Smed, and then everything fell apart. That was it. So much changed. And now we've lived five months that none of us could have imagined or anticipated the weirdest in any of our lives. First, we had that quarantine intensity, then slow reopenings, then this weird summer of masks and distancing, all the social unrest, and now we're looking at a very odd fall. Pastor Kevin and I were talking about it, and he described it like a wound that starts to heal or scab over and then keeps getting reopened, and I think a lot of us are feeling that. I personally am very hopeful that we have turned a corner and things are headed in the right direction towards more sanity and normalcy, And this returning to the preaching of Matthew today, picking up right where we left off, feels very momentous and very encouraging to me personally. But no matter what today or next week or this fall looks like, how does what Jesus is saying here apply to our lives today in August of 2020? How do we respond? If it is true that purity and defilement, that sin is a matter not, doesn't start outside us, but starts inside us, What do we do? Well, there's two things I want you to take away today. Here's the first one. Pay attention to the heart that is motivating your actions. Pay attention to the heart that is motivating your actions. A huge part of maturity, of growth as a human, of spiritual growth is learning to pay attention to what's underneath the hood as to why you and I are doing the things we do. We all tend toward this germ theory of sin, just like the Pharisees did. I'm struggling with anger because all the people I work with are so stupid. I had that affair because my husband or wife didn't love me enough. I lied because the people were mean and deserved it. This reminds me of James 1, where he talks about our tendency to put temptations outside of ourselves, even unto God and our circumstances, not on ourselves. But God is calling us to something so much more, to wholeness, to getting beyond blaming others for our lives, to getting beyond externalizing our sin, to paying attention to to our hearts because, as Jesus says, that's actually the source of the fire that creates the smoke of sin in our lives. I mean, don't you get tired of the stupid things you say and do, I do, of the sins and destructive habits in your life, the only way forward, Jesus says, is inward. We need to pay attention to the heart that is motivating our actions. So you may be a nice churchgoer and a friendly person around other Christians who think the same way you do, but if on social media you're aggressive, one-sided, opinionated, hard-hearted, mocking, ridiculing, or reposting things to do on either side of any issue, then you need to look inside. That nice exterior is hypocrisy, according to Jesus, if the heart creates a different fire in another part of your life. 
if your online persona is aggressive, unkind, uncharitable, ungenerous. doesn't matter how much Christianity you, you manifest in other places, you have to look at your heart. Or take the issue of race and all the social unrest related to that right now. If you know me, you know that I'm about as apolitical as it comes. I don't care about any political parties. I have opinions about certain aspects of how society is structured and built, but I have no hope in any group of people to, to do that particularly well. And when it comes to racial issues, I think there are some really important things happening and being said. I think there are some really thoughtless and foolish things being said and done as well. But what matters most is that I look inside and start being more honest about my own heart. Ways that I am prejudiced and judgmental toward people who are different than me, my apathy about difficulties and sufferings of others until it affects my own life. There are no simple answers and solutions to the unrest in our society right now, but I know that I need to start with an honest assessment of my heart. And that may lead me to take certain actions, but I have to start with my own prejudices and apathies and self-protection and ways that I have perpetuated systems of injustice. I have to look inside first. Husbands, let me say something to you. There's something about being male, I think, and I think it's deepened and perpetuated by our culture that we tend to assume we're right and we see things clearly while our wives don't. And I'm speaking in generalities. There may be some exceptions, but my experience is that women are often more intuitive to what's really going on in the heart of a situation than men are. My experience is that many men just barrel through and are content with outcomes and behaviors. Many men spend their entire lives focusing on performing and providing and winning and working so that we don't slow down and look inside and pay attention to why we're doing what we're doing. I'm struck by that great line by Thomas Merton. We spend our whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find when we get to the top that our ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Some of you know exactly what I mean. You've spent decades of not paying attention to your heart, but it's not too late. Now is the time, and maybe today, ask your wife to give you an honest assessment of areas of your life where you have not paid attention to the heart. <laughs> Can I challenge you to do that? Wives, woman thou art loosed, I free you to do that this afternoon. <laughs> And the second, more shortly, more briefly, second application I want to give you, be heart naked honest with the God who loves you. Naked is an uncomfortable word. <laughs> Just saying it is uncomfortable, and that's why I'm saying it. It's an uncomfortable word, and that's okay, because Jesus's reenculturation project is disruptive. It is embarrassing. It is uncomfortable. I have some old friends from our, when we lived in Scotland. And when I think of myself, the 20, 15 to 20 year ago version of myself, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm embarrassed about all kinds of stuff of the 20 year ago version of myself. And I was recently with some of these dear old friends and, uh, in Michigan, and I just said to them, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just embarrassed for a lot of the ways I showed up in our relationships in those days. And it's very freeing to do that, you know? to just be honest instead of to flee from that sort of shame. Well, the bad news is 
that God sees and cares about our hearts because there's so much darkness. But the good news is he sees and cares about our hearts. He loves you. He wants to transform you. This whole thing of redemption was his idea. He's not reluctant or hesitant to bless you. He's not hesitant to work in you, to fill you with his own spirit, to transform you, to empower you, to heal you, to change you. So teenagers, single moms, men, women, children, retirees, wives, husbands, single people, start being honest before the Lord because he cares for you and he can and is very happy to begin a new and deeper work in you once you start paying attention to the heart. So I encourage you to uh, get out your communion supplies if you have them, or if you're watching from home. And just to end this service by reminding us that all of this transformative work that we're talking about comes from the, the God-man who on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body I give to you as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And he took wine that he was sharing with his dear friends, rejoicing. And he said with tears in his eyes, this is my blood poured out for you to make a new covenant, a new relationship between God and humanity. And so as we partake of this, we remember that the hope that we have for all that we've talked about here today is not empowering in ourselves, not just a more positive attitude, but the fact that Jesus died and rose and ascended and sent the spirit that we might know life in its fullness. Let me pray for us. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.